Can someone please very kindly give me a mic check? Uh, just to make sure everyone can hear me. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa laqibatu lil-muttaqeen. Wa la'udwana illa ala al-zalimeen. Wa ashadu an la ilaha illa Allah wahdahu la sharika lah. Ilahu al-awwaleen wa al-akhirin. Wa ashadu anna nabiyyana muhammadin abduhu wa rasooluhu mustafa al-ameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd. Welcome to our first class of the, what is now the sixth year of QP, QP year six. Alhamdulillah, may Allah Azza wa Jal bless everyone and I hope that everyone had a good summer break, uh, Ramadan, Hajj, for those of you who went for Hajj, um, and just like good general break. And hope that everyone's refreshed, inshallah ta'ala, for another year of tafsir. Uh, the exams, inshallah ta'ala, have been told hopefully next week, bidnullah ta'ala, we will have um, an update for you in terms of results and, and what took place, and uh, maybe even just go so over, over some of the questions. Um, and this week, as you know, and next week, inshallah, we're going to have a special, as we usually do when we begin our academic year, we always like to start the first lesson or two with a special something, uh, just to kind of... Uh, slowly bring us back into tafsir inshallah when we do start our tafsir uh, maybe in a couple of weeks time inshallah ta'ala we'll begin or we're going to continue with uh, our tafsir from Juz Amma and we, we are now on uh, Surat Al-Buruj inshallah ta'ala but today and uh, possibly most likely next week as well we're going to have a, a special um, which is a special on um, as we've done I think a number of them uh, now a special on uh, a scholar from the scholars of tafsir, someone who we often quote from. Like the, the idea behind these specials is that it's so we have different types of specials for those of you that are that are attending QP for the first time. Uh, you haven't attended before. We do a number of specials throughout the academic year. We try to, and we do them on different topics. But one of the topics that we focus on is scholars of tafsir and their methodologies in tafsir. Uh, and uh, usually it's those scholars of tafsir whose books we often refer to. So, I, so if I can remember correctly, we've done an Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala. We've done uh, an Imam al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah ta'ala. We've done Jalal al-Din al-Suyuti and al-Mahalli when we did tafsir al-Jalalain. And we've done uh, Sheikh Abdul Rahman ibn Nasr al-Sa'di, rahimahullah, from memory. Those are the four that I, I, I can remember. Maybe someone can add um, a name if I've, if I've forgotten from the top of my head. Those are the four that we've done so far over the last uh, five years or so. And it's good because one of the things that we wanted to do in our tafsir and QP isn't just the tafsir of the Quran, but it's actually like certain sciences and certain things that, that, that surround tafsir. And one of those things is the methodology of tafsir and how the scholars of uh, tafsir the Mufassirun have a methodology that they follow in making tafsir of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because we live in a time when people are as you know very uh, focused on the Quran there's a great deal of interest alhamdulillah in terms of the Quran understanding the Quran reading the Quran memorizing the Quran everything concerning the Quran and uh, one of the things that's therefore very important is whenever you take a science from the sciences of Islam is to make sure that you're taking it with its correct methodology. And the correct methodology in these sciences, all of them, irrespective of what they are, 
is the methodology that the companions and the tabi'een and those early scholars were upon and then the scholars who followed them in that tradition and uh, in their methodologies. And so that's something which we focus on. We also focus on in our specials uh, some of the sciences of Islam and particularly uh, sciences that maybe aren't so well known or studied um, anymore for one reason or another. They're not as commonly uh, spoken about anymore. They've kind of become sciences that are almost uh, being lost in, in, in you know, other than within expert fields. They're kind of being lost uh, in terms of them just being sciences that the average Muslim is aware of. And so we also like to do specials on that. So one of those specials that we did, for example, last year was uh, we, we did like an introduction into some of the different sciences of reciting the Quran that people aren't aware of. So, for example, Al-Ad, uh, al we spoke about like how to, um, uh, the, the different numberings of the verses of the Quran. Uh, I think we gave a brief introduction in terms of things like Al-Rasam and Al-Dab, the Quranic script and how that's done. Um, and I don't think that we went into a great, lot of like we we just did a general one but maybe inshallah ta'ala this year we can we can do something uh in more detail concerning concerning some of those uh, sciences um so uh maybe that's something inshallah ta'ala which we can do but either way um for today and and most likely next week inshallah ta'ala what we will do is we will look at the science or the, or the um the biography of a scholar of tafsir and his methodology in tafsir and the author that we have with us or inshallah ta'ala before us today in terms of his biography and his life is none other than our teacher the teacher of our teacher Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqidi rahimahullah ta'ala and for those of you that have attended QP over the last few years or you've listened to the recordings or you've uh, read some of the transcripts that are available um, one of the things that you will notice inshallah ta'ala uh, is that this is someone who we often quote from we often refer back to him someone that you'll often hear me speaking about um, and, and referring to his tafsir and his tafsir al-bayan is, is an amazing tafsir an amazing book and inshallah ta'ala one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on him is so that we can take a slightly closer look uh, in terms of the tafsir so for those of you that are aware over the last few years in Ramadan I've been doing um, in my local masjid here in Birmingham I've been doing like a, an intensive tafsir so every Ramadan. We do a slightly different tafsir to QP. QP, uh, as I'm sure you're all aware by now, is a very detailed look into the tafsir of the Book of Allah. We take one, two, three verses at a time. We go into a great, uh, into, into great detail. That tafsir in Ramadan is slightly different where we take a classical book of tafsir um, or even a relatively contemporary book of tafsir and we go do a reading and, and a light commentary on it so that we can finish um you know finish uh, the tafsir of the book of allah azzawajal because qp uh, isn't really about the finishing it's more about us just getting very deep into tafsir understanding how the salaf used to make tafsir how the companions used to make tafsir how uh, the tabi'een used to make tafsir how the early scholars who we refer to people like al-tabari and ibn abi hatim and abdul razaq and ibn munzir and these uh, scholars of, of tafsir were the pioneers of this science how they used to make tafsir that's what qp does but at the same time, it's very important for us to have a you know a general understanding of all of the Book of Allah Azza not just Juz Amma, Juz Amma or some of the smaller surahs of the Quran. And so we've done Tafsir Jalalain, Alhamdulillah, all of it, and we completed that in Ramadan a few years back. And then we are currently doing Tafsir Sa'di. And inshallah ta'ala, we've done three years. Next year, next Ramadan, bi ta'ala, if Allah gives us life and ability, we will finish Tafsir Sa'di. We have 
I think maybe five, six, seven juz left of Tafsir al-Sa'di. And so that will inshallah ta'ala be finished next Ramadan. So that will be two amazing major works of Tafsir of our time. The um, the reason why I mentioned that now is because I was going to say if Adwa'ul Bayan, the Tafsir of Sheikh Al-Shanqiti rahimahullah was translated into English like these other ones, that's a Tafsir that I would have done. It's a Tafsir that I would have chosen because it's amazing. Um, in its methodology, in its uh, and inshallah next week when you go, we uh, most likely next week when you go into that in detail, when we look at his methodology and what it was and the reason why he authored this tafsir and the amount of effort and time and some of the stories uh, that you know he, because he's relatively recent as you know like relatively contemporary the author rahimahullah ta'ala died maybe about 50, 60 years ago and so his children or some of his children are still alive some of his Students were not very elderly, generally his students, but they're still alive. You can still meet people and study with people who are direct students of the author. And so the stories of him writing his tafsir and authoring his tafsir and researching his tafsir are stories that you can still find and hear and so on. Um, so I think it's a very interesting look, uh, somewhat different to, for example, studying and looking at the methodology of a tabari, for example, or a qultubi or qurtubi or someone like that who, was, who lived many, many centuries ago. Um, and so inshallah ta'ala today I think we're going to mainly focus on his biography and then inshallah ta'ala next week we'll probably look closer at his tafsir and then inshallah the week after we we continue with our tafsir or start with our tafsir of Surah Al-Buruj. So the Shaykh, the teacher of our teachers, and I call him the teacher of our teachers because he, I, I am alhamdulillah very fortunate to have studied with a number of people who studied with the Shaykh rahimahullah ta'ala. So the Shaykh, as we will speak about today when his biography died, uh, in the 70s, 1970s, so about 50 odd, 55, 60 years ago now. Um, and so he passed away not too long ago. So many of the people who studied with him are still alive. And most of them are very elderly, you know, probably themselves now in their 70s and 80s. Uh, but some of them are still alive. And when I was a student in Medina, uh, we used to have a number of them that were alive and that were teaching either in the university or teaching in the Masjid of the Prophet wasallam. So the uh, Sheikh, he has a, for anyone that studied in the Islamic University of Medina, he's one of those larger than life personalities that still has uh, an impact on the university in the sense people know his name, people know his story, you know, his uh, one of his sons, the other one passed away, but the one that's still uh, alive, Hafizahullah uh, Shah Abdullah, he is, I think, I, he used to anyway be teaching at the university, he may well have retired now, he's quite elderly himself. So, but the Sheikh is known and his students are known and his story is known in Medina. Uh, and many of the people that met him and studied with him from the very early students that managed to go to Medina back in the 19, uh, whatever it was, 1960s or whatever it was when they first went, they they got to study with the Sheikh and, and he was from their teachers and so on. So, uh, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti, ta'ala, his uh, full name is, is Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin. Ibn Muhammad al-Mukhtar ibn Abdul Qadir, and I actually have in my notes here his whole like I mean uh, his whole like lineage going back like seven eight generations, but we don't need to go that far. His name is Muhammad al-Amin, so as we know, Ashanqiti uh, refers to Mauritania, and the Mauritanian, uh, the people of Mauritania, especially Ashanqit, they are known for their dual barrel names, double barrel names. So often they, they, their names are Muhammad Al-Amin or Muhammad Mukhtar or Muhammad. Like they have two names and it's actually meant to be their first name. So the Sheikh's first name is actually Muhammad Al-Amin. That's his name, Muhammad Al-Amin. 
and his father's name is Muhammad al-Mukhtar, right? If that was like us, Pakistanis, Indians, you know, like Arabs and so on, Muhammad would be your first name, Al-Amin would be your second name. But the, the Mauritanians have a slightly different way of doing this. So his name was Muhammad al-Amin, his father's name was Muhammad al-Mukhtar, his grandfather's name was Abdul Qadir, and then his um, lineage goes back, obviously, uh, much longer. He is from the tribe of uh, Al-Jakni, Jakani. He is known as Al-Jakani. So if you read many of the, if you have any of the Sheikh's books, uh, one of the things that you will find is it says Al-Jakani al-Shanqiti. Al-Shanqit refers to Mauritania. Al-Jakani is his tribe. And the tribe of Al-Jakani, if you were to go back like centuries, comes from Himyar. And Himyar is from the famous Arab tribes. I think they originally come from Yemen. Uh, but it's mentioned in the books of history, in Muslim history, the tribe of Himyar is a very well-known tribe. And obviously these tribes, as they as time passes on, they become bigger and bigger. Then you get more and more clans and offshoots of them. And they spread across what was then the Muslim world. Right? So remember, the Muslim uh, empire had expanded greatly. And so these people are traveling and they're settling in different places. So uh, he is known as Al-Jakani al-Shanqidi. And in fact, in my um, my um, uh, edition of, of Adwa' al-Bayan, which is quite an old edition now, uh, Actually, on his name, it says that he is Al-Jakani, Al-Shanqiti, Al-Afriqi, Al-Maliki. And I don't remember the exact order, but it's those four things. That he's from the tribe of Al-Jakan, and he's Shanqiti from Mauritania, and he's from Africa, Afriqi, and he's Maliki, meaning his madhab was Maliki, as was the madhab of the people of Mauritania, and still is until today. So that's his name, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin ibn Muhammad Al-Mukhtar ibn Abdul Qadir Al-Jakani Al-Shanqiti. Um, and people often uh, confuse him. People often confuse him with uh, a contemporary of his by the name of Sheikh Muhammad al-Mukhtar. And that's because these names, Muhammad al-Amin, Muhammad al-Mukhtar, these are very common amongst the people of, of Mauritania. So our teacher, my one of my direct teachers, and he's still alive, still teaches in the Haram in Medina. His name is Sheikh Muhammad ibn Muhammad al-Mukhtar al-Shanqiti. Uh, his father's name was Muhammad al-Mukhtar, and that Muhammad al-Mukhtar is a contemporary of this Muhammad al-Amin. So Muhammad al-Amin, the, the author that we're looking at in his life today, his father's name is Muhammad al-Mukhtar. And his contemporary's name was Muhammad al-Mukhtar. He was also a scholar and a teacher at the Islamic University of Medina. His son's name is Muhammad, the son of Muhammad al-Mukhtar. Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin himself had a son who passed away a few years back, rahimahullah. His name was Muhammad al-Mukhtar. So these names, are, and so you often find people just becoming confused and saying, Wait a minute, which one is that? So until you kind of get your head around these names, like as a new student, people used to often get confused between who's, who's Muhammad Mukhtar and who's Muhammad Al-Amin and which Muhammad Mukhtar is this. And so it does, it, it does take some getting used to sometimes if you don't really know uh, your way around these names. But often this sheikh is referred to as Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin. Someone says to you Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin and they're referring to a scholar of tafsir or a recent scholar or a scholar that used to teach in the Islamic University of Medina. Then usually, uh, most likely, it is this one, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti, rahimahullahu ta'ala. He was born um, in the uh, he was born in in Mauritania in the year in the Hijri year of one thousand three hundred and twenty-five of the Hijra, which approximately is around nineteen oh five, nineteen oh five, nineteen oh six, nineteen oh seven. If you do the conversion, I don't know exactly what it comes out, but usually it's like a twenty-year thing. Uh, between the Gregorian and between the Hijri calendar. So around the year 1905, he was born ta'ala, in Mauritania. And the Sheikh, um, at a very, from a very young age, he became an orphan. That his father passed away when he was relatively young. In fact, he says that he was 
uh, at the age where he was still learning Juz Amma of the Quran, meaning so he's probably like four, five, maybe six years old at most. And usually in those countries, uh, especially during that generation, uh, children would have started memorizing Quran very early, maybe even three, four years old, because that's just the, the way that they used to have, like the Shanaqita have always, even till today, had a big focus on memorization and Quran and Arabic language and poetry. This is something which is well known about them, especially in that generation when the Sheikh uh, was born, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And so, very young age, they would start. And if you've heard me um, speak about this before, which I'm sure you have, you know, one of the things that we, we always say and mention when we go through these biographies is how the parents of these ulama started them so young, like three, four, five years old, and they've started them on the path of knowledge, even if it's just memorizing Quran, even if it's just, and how things have changed now, where often we don't really begin with our children in terms of Quran and stuff, like we think like six, seven, eight, maybe nine, you know, then we're thinking, okay, now this is the time to start now because they've gone to school or they've learned to write and read and write English or whatever it may be. And that's when we start the Quran with them, which I think is a big mistake. Um, often you will find that the scholar started very young. So anyway, the point here is that his father passed away when he was very young, so he became an orphan. And as you know, when it comes to um, the definition of an orphan in Islamic law, then that would be when the father passes away, even if the mother is still alive, as opposed to Western law, where both parents would usually pass away before someone is termed as an orphan. So the author, Muhammad, his father passed away, he's very young. And then he grew up with his mother and he grew up with his akhwal, his maternal uncles, his mother's brothers in their household, living with them. So it seems like his mother, after her husband passed away, uh, his mother, after her husband passed away, moved back in with her brothers. And obviously she took him as well. He was the only child, so he didn't have any children. His father passed away before they had any other children. And his mother was the first cousin of his father anyway. So they're all kind of one family. So his father, the sheikh's father and mother were first cousins anyway. He married his first cousin. He passed away. So he and his mother went back to her brothers who are first cousins to their father anyway. It's a single family. And they were the ones who kind of like then gave him his tarbiyah. He grew up in that household and it was known to be a household of knowledge. It was a household of knowledge, a household of of uh, of salah, of, of righteousness and piety, of ibadah. And so that's kind of when he when he grew up. And his father also left him some wealth. His father, it seemed, uh, and he doesn't mention, at least not that I've come across, what exactly his father did in terms of um, in terms of his work or job. But he seemed to have some wealth. Maybe he was a businessman or something at that time. And so he left he left behind an inheritance. He left behind for his son uh, quite some wealth of that time. Wealth meaning, uh, you know, in that time, especially in that that region of the world, animals and and livestock and those types of things that would have given someone a status within that particular community at that time. The uh, Sheikh Muhammad then grew up in this household and it was his uncles and his mother and his uncle's wives who from amongst them were people of knowledge, from amongst them were experts who had studied or people who had studied very deeply in certain sciences and different things. They were the ones who kind of helped him in terms of his formative years of studying. So a lot of that study initially he did at home. So his, uh, he studied things like the Arabic language, he memorized the Quran with them, he learned uh, Arabic poetry from them, he learned, for example, lineage, the lineage of the Arabs, because the Shanaqit are considered Arabs, even though they're living in Africa, they're considered Arabs, like the Sudanese and the Egyptians and others, and so he learned the lineage of the Arabs and so on. 
the Shaykh Rahmanullah Ta'ala in his biography, because a lot of this stuff you know, is written uh, by his children or his students, and they've taken these stories from him directly. He said that once, when he was a young boy, um, the Shaykh from a very young age was very, very uh, perceptive, very intelligent, had amazing memory. Uh, was very sharp, very quick to pick up things. Like from a very young age, they noticed this about him. And because they noticed this, they focused more on him. So, for example, usually when you're studying sciences of Islam, the science of lineage or genealogy isn't even a science that really comes up. Like it's not something, and it's not really something you teach to a young child either. But when they saw that he had the ability to memorize and learn and understand, like different members of the family, each one would just kind of focus on something with him and he picked it up very quickly. Rahimahullah ta'ala. The Sheikh said, speaking about his childhood, that he loved to play. Like most children, right? They loved to play. And he said that he would go at home and he would be studying and then he would have playtime. And he would love to play and he didn't really like studying very well. So um, just to show how, how, how uh, perceptive and intelligent he was, ta'ala, he said that when I was young and they first started teaching me the Arabic letters of the alphabet. So they taught me Alif, then Ba, then Ta, then Tha. He said they went through the letters of the alphabet and I memorized them. They would write them out and make you read them and memorize them and so on. He learned the alphabet. He said after I learned the alphabet, then, then I started to teach him to read. So the next lesson was, okay, if you have an alif and it has a fatha, it makes the a sound. And if you have an alif and it has a kasra, it makes the e sound. And if you have an alif and it's got a dhamma, it makes the u sound. Now you come to ba. If the ba has a fatha, it's a, it's, the ba has a fatha, it makes the ba sound. If the ba has a kasra, it makes the b sound. If a ba has a dhamma, it makes the bu sound. If the ta, come to the third, it's the ta. The ta has a fatha, it makes a ta sound. Has a kasra, it makes a t sound. Has a dhamma, it makes a tu sound. Now let's go on to tha. The sheikh said, stop. So they did like the first two, three letters. He said to him, stop, because you know, this is going to take forever. He said, is that the same for every letter? Like the fatha is a a sound, the kasra is always an e kind of sound, and the dhamma is always an u kind of sound. They said, yeah, that's how it works. He said, I don't need the rest of the lesson. I know what it is. And so they tested him and he just automatically picked it up. Like imagine a child of five, six, seven. He doesn't need you to go through the whole alphabet. He's, he's understood now. That's the qaida, that's the, the rule. That's what we're going across. Okay, that's enough. Can I go and play now? That's what he said in his biography. He said, I said to him, can I go and play now? I know this. They said, okay, go play. So that's what he would do. So he would say, at that age, what I would often do is I would be very quick in just finishing my lessons so that I could just go and play because he loved to play. And he said, and then... As soon as he, because that made him read or learn to read very quickly. And he said, as soon as I was able to read, I started to read. And then I left off playing and I just became uh, engaged in books. He loved to read books. The uh, Shaykh Rahmanullah Ta'ala by the age of 10 had memorized the Quran. And also not only in terms of memorizing the Quran, but as they do in that part of the world, um, for those of you that are aware, especially in Western Africa, that part of the world, even today in Morocco and those types of places, they also teach you to write the Arabic script write the Quranic script rather so you learn the Quran not only in terms of memorization but in terms of the Quranic script as well and that's what he did obviously uh, with the riwayah or the qira'at uh, that are being read in that part of the world which is the qira'at warsh and the qira'at qalun that's how he uh, how he learned it rahimahullah ta'ala and at the same time as he's doing his Quran, so he, he memorized Quran at the age of 10. He said, I continued to learn Quran and read Quran in the different riwayat, learning Warsh and Qalun, which were the two riwayat of that, of that part of the world. Uh, and I got my ijazah back to the Prophet in terms of my qira and my reading by the age of 16. And whilst he was doing that at the same time, 
He's learning Arabic grammar. He's learning poetry. He's learning the seerah. He's learning fiqh, the, the Maliki fiqh, which was the madhab of, of uh, and still is the madhab of that part of the world, even in Morocco and so on. The, the madhab is Maliki. He said, I started to learn all of these things and started to memorize them. Um, and at the same time, he was learning other things as well that he just, you know, so for example, he was learning uh, certain things concerning um, uh, rhetoric and how to speak and mantiq and the different types of eloquence and the different types of Arabic poetry that there is and, and all of these things that you have from the, the different sciences of the Arabic language, like learning, for example, for balagha, uh, eloquence and learning sarf and learning nahu Arabic grammar and morphology and all of these things, as well as learning some tafsir and some hadith and so on and so forth. And so the Sheikh started doing this from from a very young age. He just he just loved to read and he just started taking from all of these different sciences. The Sheikh um, became like he, he memorized I don't know how much in terms of the Arabic the, the lineage of the Arabs genealogy. His aunt who was his uncle's wife was someone who was well known for this. She she had memorized and learnt and studied this in her own way and so she taught him. And he memorized so much of it and learned so much of it that he actually penned and authored his own poem. Apparently it was hundreds of verses long about all of the different lineage of the Arabs. And it was meant to have been an amazing poem. Uh, poem. But the Sheikh later on in his life, he said that I buried the poem, I got rid of it. So they said to him, why? Because it was something which would have been amazing, beneficial, people could have studied it and learned it. He said the reason why I wrote this poem from a young age, at a young age is because I wanted to best my contemporaries. I wanted to show my contemporaries that I was more knowledgeable than them, knew more than them, was more intelligent than them. He goes, I felt that I didn't write it with sincerity. I didn't author this poem or write this poem for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And because of that, in later life, he buried it and no one really ever saw it or studied it or read it. He just got rid of it. Rahimahullah ta'ala. And that's something which you will see, inshallah, and we'll speak maybe slightly more about this in terms of his character and personality. Uh, he he was someone who had a great deal of of, of wara and taqwa uh, and piety. Wallahu uh, hasibu. This is how we think of him, and Allah Azza wa Jal is our judge and his. But this is how uh, all, the, all the stories that are related of him and about him all seem to point to this: that he was someone known for his taqwa, known for his piety, for someone to like spend so much time writing and authoring something, and then seeing you know actually that wasn't even done for the sake of Allah or maybe it wasn't done solely for the sake of Allah and then just to bury it and get rid of it, shows, I think, a great deal about someone's uh, character and their personality and also their uh, religiosity. The um, author, Muhammad Al-Amin, he said that when I reached around the age of 15, my mother said to me that, okay, you've studied here now and you've learned from us and so on, it's time for you to go and study with the ulama. Go and study with the ulama. And so what she did for him is she uh, gave to him two camels or two horses, one of them for him to ride upon and the other one for his books and for his possessions to carry them on. And she gave him a, a, um, a servant that would accompany him on his travels and she gave him clothes and, and whatever else so that he could go and study and learn. And so as we said, like the, the sheikh and his family, ta'ala, seemed to have some uh, you know they were they were somewhat affluent or they were somewhat comfortable in terms of them being able to to afford these types of things at a time when many of those people probably were not so fortunate or not so well off so he said that's when i started to go and study so he said he went and he went to the different parts of of that country studying and learning and seeking knowledge the sheikh was known for his as i said his intelligence and for his 
ability to understand and his ability to memorize. One of the things that you will find, inshallah, next week when you speak about his tafsir is how much poetry is in his tafsir. So if you go to, like, to the old, old um, classical works of tafsir, you'll find that they often mention poetry because they'll come to a verse and the Arabic of that verse and they'll say, well, this word can possibly mean two or three things because this is how the Arabs use it. How do we know that the Arabs use it in those two or three contexts? Because so-and-so said in this poem and so-and-so said in their poetry over here. And so and they're, they're quoting not only uh, Muslim poets, but usually poets of Jahiliya, pre-Islam and the days of ignorance and the way that they would formulate these types of things. So the Sheikh memorized a lot of this and you will find this in his tafsir, inshallah, when we will, we will give examples of this next week. It's full of, of poems, full of poetry. And so the Sheikh memorized poetry and he was able, he, he actually memorized uh, much of what he did, like much of what he read and so on, he memorized. So the Sheikh, he said that my, um, from a young age when I would go to a teacher, his, his, his natural way of studying or his nature demanded that if he was going to study an issue, he would want to deep dive into that issue until he understood it from A to Z. That's just his nature. So he would go into something, and if he's going to study an issue of tafsir, or an issue of fiqh, or an issue of hadith, or whatever it may be, he wants to just read and read so that he can understand the whole thing from every angle, and then move on to the next thing. That's just his nature. He said, and if I went to a teacher and he didn't do that for me, like I didn't felt that I got that from him, then I would need to do that myself. So he said on one occasion, he mentions this about himself, Rahimahullah, he says, on one occasion I went to a teacher and he was studying an issue and he doesn't really mention what the issue was, but he says that he, uh, we were mentioning an issue and we were studying it and he didn't really go very deep. He just kind of summarized the issue and then moved on. He said, when I finished from him and I left, I felt that I hadn't fulfilled what I needed in order to understand that issue. So he said, I started to read myself. He said, I spent that whole day reading, that whole day reading, like Dhuhr, then Asr, then Maghrib, then it's night time. So remember, this is like, you know, probably back in the 19, I don't know, maybe 1940s or 19, uh, sorry, 1920s or 30s that we're talking about now, uh, maybe 1920s. So, you know, there's very little like electricity, very, uh, the country is not very modernized and so on. And so he's saying that I will literally um, study the night and my servant would come and he would light candle after candle for me have a fire lit by me and he would light my candle after candle because I would spend the whole night awake studying and then when the time came for for um, for Fajr by then I would have understood what I wanted like I would have got the whole picture that I wanted by that time and so that just gives you an example of, of what he and one of his sons uh, mentions uh, that his father, when he was writing his tafsir, his adwa al this was his nature, that he would engross himself into something. And he's saying in his tafsir, adwa al when he was authoring this, it took him, it would take from him so much time and concentration and so much like mental capacity that sometimes he would be sitting and writing and researching and, and guests would come and visitors would come to his house and he wouldn't even realize that someone's come in. Like he'd be so engrossed that people are coming in and they're visiting and so on. There's visitors that have come to see the family. He doesn't even realize. And they leave and he doesn't know that they came and they went. Or they come in and then someone has to has to grab his attention and say, Oh, Sheikh, you know, you have visitors and you have guests. And then he would realize that there's someone here that's come to see me. And so that's something which you, you find concerning the Sheikh. Like he just had that ability to completely focus on something. And he used to focus on it in, in a great detail, rahimahullah ta'ala. And that's something which he does, does in every single thing. Like you find him in his books, in, so 
one of the, the tafsir is obviously something which is well known for because of the books that he authored but the other subject that he's very well known for at the Islamic University of Medina what he would often teach is usul al-fiqh and even in usul al-fiqh he had a great ability to have understanding and understand the issues and so on and it's something which you will find uh, you know if you were to go to uh, if you were to go and read some of the books that he authored in those or on those topics the Shaykh, rahimahullah ta'ala, this is his, this is his, his way of doing stuff. Um, when it comes to his tafsir, for example, uh, he was teaching tafsir at one point, and someone, um, he mentioned some issues concerning what some of the Salaf said about a verse of the Qur'an. And someone said to him that I have the book of a, a Shaykh by the name of Sulaiman al-Jamal. Sulaiman al-Jamal has a hashia, a commentary on tafsir al-Jalaleen. So tafsir al-Jalaleen that we covered, a number of scholars did a commentary on it. From those scholars, it's Sulaiman al-Jamal. He said to the sheikh, this man who heard the sheikh speaking, he said that I've read all of Sulaiman al-Jamal's hashia, all of his commentary and tafsir, and I never came across what you're mentioning. The sheikh said that I think that I have more depth in tafsir than Sulaiman al-Jamal, the scholar who passed away and he and he wrote on uh, he wrote a commentary on tafsir al-Jalalain. He said that there's not a single verse, he said there's not a single verse of the Qur'an except that I studied it verse by verse, meaning independent. I took that verse and I just focused on it. Kind of like what we do in QP. So our methodology, as you know, in QP is we take one verse and we just go into deep, 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 and then we move on to the next one. Whereas the other way of doing tafsir is, no, you take a number of verses like we do when we do Jalalain and Sa'di. We don't really go deep into every verse. We just kind of have a basic understanding. As long as we understand what the verse is and what the, what the benefits are, we move on. He said, there's not a single verse of the Qur'an the Shaykh is saying, except that I did a deep dive on it. So you can imagine now, like it's taken us, and I don't know, we only do this class like one hour once a week, and we take like three, four months off in the summer. But this is our sixth year of QP. And in our sixth year of QP, we're going to start Surah Al-Buruj. So we start from Surah Al-Nas, and we moved in reverse order. And now we're coming to Surah Al-Buruj. Basically, last year, after five years, pretty much we finished half a juz. Five years, and okay, as I said, one hour a week and so on and so forth. But you can imagine how much time that's taken us just to do half a juz. Can you imagine doing this for the whole Qur'an? And even if you were to do every day, and even if you were to stick three, four, five hours a day to it, how long that would take for you to finish the whole book of Allah, 6,000 odd verses? He said there's not a single verse of the Qur'an except that I did that. And he said there's not a single verse of the Qur'an except that I memorized the positions of some of the scholars of the Salaf concerning every verse. Like I memorized what some of them said about every verse. Every verse you can ask me and I will tell you either Ibn Abbas, this was the position, or Ibn Mas'ud, or, or Sa'id ibn Jubair, or Ata, or Mujahid, or whoever it may be, this was their position. Like It doesn't mean they memorized every statement on every verse, but there's not a verse except that I know what some of those old scholars said concerning it. And that's amazing. Like to have in your mind or in your, in your memory what Ibn Abbas said about numerous verses and Ibn Mas'ud said and others that's something which is a gift from the gifts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so this is what he said about him and this inshallah we will see when we come next week into uh, looking at the methodology of tafsir and the tafsir itself but just to give you an idea of him in terms of his personality in terms of his uh, his discipline in terms of his his ability to study and in terms of his nature in terms of the way that he was studying and one of the things that I like um, when we when we look at the, the the biographies of scholars like Sheikh Muhammad Al Amin and Sheikh Abdul Rahman Al Saadi and others who lived within the last like hundred odd years, you know they died in the last 50, 60 years. They lived in the last hundred odd years or so. 
is that these are scholars who lived you know, in the time of Tabari or Bukhari or Imam Ahmad or Shafi'i or any of those scholars and Imams because usually what we think of when we hear these kinds of stories is uh, you know, okay that's a different time, it's a different generation, things were different, scholars were everywhere and so on. The Sheikh only lived like, you know, he died in the 1970s. Um, you know, some of us have, have um, people that we know and maybe some of them are even still alive that would have been around similar to the Sheikh's age, born in the 1920s or probably around 100 years or so older. Uh, the Sheikh didn't live from that, he's not from that time or that generation or that era. But it shows that even today, if you have the same principles and methodologies that the scholars have always had for centuries, and you study in that same way, and you take their methodology, and you learn with their etiquettes and so on, that Allah Azza wa Jalla can bless anyone. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala can open up the uh, open up the doors of knowledge for for anyone. And so the Sheikh memorized a great deal, studied a great a great deal, and he became in his own country. In, by the time he reached his 30s, he became very well known. He was a judge amongst his people. He was the mufti of his people. He was known for his knowledge. Uh, people used to travel to him to study. If he went to different cities in that area, in that whole country, people would know who he was. His name was known. And this is well before social media. It's well before Facebook and Twitter. It's well before the internet. And pe- But people know. And so the only way people know during those times is because the scholars know who they are. And when the scholars know, they tell their people and their communities in their masjid, just like many of our parents and so on, grandparents, before TV, before audio cassettes and so on. This is how you would know who these people were. Their names were known amongst the scholars because of their knowledge and their and their understanding and their fiqh. And then that became known amongst the communities that they used to live in and reside in. And so the sheikh became very well known, rahimahullah ta'ala. The... Um, <clears throat> The next stage of his life is now when he leaves Mauritania and he goes for Hajj. One of the things that is very nice about the Sheikh Rahimullah Ta'ala is he actually wrote um, parts of his uh, experiences in traveling. Uh, he traveled in the year 1367. So in the late like 40s, like maybe around 1947-ish, he decided when he was around 40 years old or so, he decided that he wanted to go and perform Hajj. So he left, and by land, he traveled from Mauritania to Mecca to perform Hajj. And that trip of like two, three months, however long it took, and the different countries that he would have to pass through in order to reach Saudi Arabia, that's something which he actually wrote on. He has a book called Rihla ila al-Hajj, My Journey to Hajj, in which he mentions lots of stuff. He mentions the people he met, he mentions the stories that took place, he mentions the questions he was asked, so he mentions like, there's a part of the book that is to do with knowledge and fatwas and studying, researching issues and discussions. Then there's other parts that are just stories and experiences and funny things that happen to him. It's just it's like a it's like a collection of everything that would happen to someone on a three to four month journey, but also someone who was a man of knowledge who, when he was passing through these countries like Sudan and other places, people knew who he was, and they had heard of him. And so when they when he would come to a place, they would often the scholars would come and they would say, please, you know, because in those days you're going to stop for a day or two to rest, to replenish, to find, you know, to wait for the next car or bus or whatever it is that's going to go or the next caravan of people that are going to move. And so you're going to be stopping in a number of places. And they would say, stay for two, three days with us and teach and let's speak and give classes and so on. And then you can carry on. And that's something which he did, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his book. And his, he called his book, Rihla ila al Haram, My Journey to Allah's House. And later on, many years when he was a teacher at the Islamic University of Medina, 
he was sent with a delegation to Africa, visit 10 countries in Africa, and to just look for students that could come and study in Medina, uh, and, and just look at the different situation of the situation of the da'wah generally in Africa. And the Sheikh also wrote a book saying, uh, calling it My Journey to Africa. So he actually penned and authored these two books about these um, journeys in his life. But anyway, the point being, is the Sheikh Rahman went for Hajj, 1940s uh, approximately, so you can imagine um, you know, what it was like back then. Uh, he arrives in Mecca and he's in Mina and the area. And in those days, people stay like they arrive early. They stay for a number of days in Mecca, like people do now. For Often in the West, as you know, it's like a very express quick Hajj. But in those days, people are staying for a good period of time. You know, maybe a lot of those people will never return ever again. So it so happened that where he was staying next to him and unknown to him, one of the princes of that time of Saudi Arabia was also making Hajj. And he had with him his friends and whatever. And one of the things that that um, prince used to like was poetry, Arabic poetry. And so they would often have discussions about poetry. And the Sheikh, as we said, is an expert in poetry. He's memorized poetry, he knows poetry, especially poetry that can be used in the Quran and the Sunnah and, and understanding the text of the Quran and the Sunnah and so on. And so these people were having a discussion and he was listening to them. And one of the, uh, the stories goes that the prince saw him like paying attention, very attentively listening. And he said to him, you know, do you have something that you want to contribute? And so the Sheikh said, yes, because I think you could say this and this. And then once they heard me speak, they realized that this man's a poet. He like knows his poetry inside out, and they were very impressed. And so that opened up the door for him to uh, to start a conversation with this prince. And over time then they learned who he was, and they realized that he's a man of knowledge, that he's come, and, and what have you. After Hajj, the, the Sheikh, Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin, rahimahullah ta'ala, he went to Medina um, after Hajj, as people do go to, to visit the city of the Prophet wasallam, And there he was introduced through the prince to two of the Imams of the Haram at that time and two of the scholars of Medina, um, Sheikh Abdullah Zahim and Sheikh Abdul Aziz Al-Salih. These two were Imams of the Haram in Medina, but they also from its major scholars of that time, from the two senior scholars of Medina. And he got to know them and speak to them and he started to learn about the Hanbali Madhab because they're all Hanabila in, 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 in Saudi Arabia and so he wants to know about that Madhab and starts to learn and, and what have you. And it had some, some of the stuff that people used to say negatively about the Aqidah of the Salaf and so on and you know what people in, in Saudi Arabia believe in and so on and so he wanted to learn from himself because I said and this is a very good thing for us knowledge to be but you don't just take people's words for stuff you don't just hear these uh, criticisms and so on you're someone who wants to study but it's only good if you have the ability and the discipline to study because some people like that that I don't want to take what people say I want to learn for myself but he doesn't have the time she doesn't have the, uh, the discipline they're not going to make the effort and so they want to but they're not going to do it the Sheikh wants to, and he can, and he will. And so he learned and he studied until he was very well, uh, or he, he familiarized himself to a certain extent with what was going on. And then one of the things that those two scholars of Medina said to him is, why don't you stay here? We need scholars, we need people of knowledge, and you, can, you should stay here because you're one of those people that we think would be a benefit for the Ummah. And the prince and so on also agreed. The Sheikh, rahimahullah ta'ala, when he went for Hajj, he had every intention to going back home. Every intention. In fact, it is said that he was married and had his kids were quite young at that time, his sons. And he left them back there with the intention of going back. But when he came and he's in Medina, and this is the first time he's there, and he meets all of these scholars, and he sees that in Medina, uh, there's knowledge now. There's knowledge, like people are teaching, and they're seeking knowledge, and people are learning, and there's scholars, and, 
he wants he loves that environment this is the environment that the sheikh wants to be in and so he said to them that i don't think that there is anything better in this time that we're living in than someone who in the masjid of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam would teach the tafsir of the book of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the sheikh actually taught the whole tafsir of the quran during his lifetime in the masjid of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and some narrations of his life say that he taught it twice one narration says he finished it once and on the second time he was at Surah At-Tawbah and he passed away. And the other version of the story goes that he taught it twice, finished it twice, and it was on the third time of his teaching that he passed away, rahimahullahu ta'ala. So the point is either way is then he starts or he decides to stay in uh, Saudi Arabia. He settles in Medina and he decides that he will stay there. And very shortly after, um, because Saudi Arabia is still like uh, relatively like um, new uh, country in that sense, like not not been very long uh, established yet, uh, so they're still forming the institutions and they're still forming like the universities and so on. You see, he stayed in Medina for like two three years or so, and then they started the the the, the government opened up some of their first universities and institutions and um, institutes of higher learning, and so one of the first ones that was open was in Riyadh and used to be known as Al Mahad Al Ilmi. And this is where many of the, the, like even today, like many of the oldest scholars of Saudi Arabia that are still living today, this is where they first went to study. Like they studied, they were like from the early batches of these types of institutions. So the Sheikh Rahman Ta'ala in uh, the year 1371, so like maybe in the early 50s now, uh, after he's been in Medina for two, three years, when they open up those institutions, they ask him to come as a teacher because they know he's an expert in, in usul and he's an expert in tafsir and those are subjects that they need. So they ask him to come and he agrees and he then moves from uh, Medina and he goes and settles in Riyadh. And it's said that he stayed in Riyadh for about 10 years teaching there. And, 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 and so you find that there are students or, or students of the Sheikh that are from his time in Medina and from his time at the Islamic University of Medina. But the Sheikh also had a number of students that met him and studied with him in Riyadh. So from his most famous students in Riyadh, for example, is Sheikh Al-Thaymeen, Sheikh Al-Thaymeen, Rahimullah Ta'ala, um, one, of the, one of the most senior scholars of Saudi Arabia of our time, was a student of the Sheikh. Um, Sheikh Bakr Abu Zaid, Rahimullah Ta'ala, was from the students of the Sheikh. Many of those scholars of that generation, they studied at, at the, in these institutions with the Sheikh, and the Sheikh used to also have lectures in his masjid, lectures at home as well. In the year 1381, so around the early 60s or very late 50s, early 60s, they, the government opened up the Islamic University of Medina. So the Islamic University of Medina was established in the year 1381. And the idea behind it, as we know, is that they wanted to bring students from across the Muslim world to study in the city of the Prophet ﷺ. And they wanted teachers, therefore, also from many different countries. And so they wanted to bring people from different backgrounds and so on. And so because the Sheikh obviously was Mauritanian, uh, even though now he's, he's, I think by then he has his maybe citizenship or permanent residency in Saudi Arabia. But because of where he's originally from, they also asked him to come. And the Sheikh uh, wanted to go back to Medina anyway. And so when they said to him, do you want to go and teach in that university? He decided that he didn't want to go and teach in that university. And so many of the uh, senior students of the Islamic University, senior in the sense that they were the first batch, the second batch, the third batch, those early batches um, of students, they would have studied with the Sheikh, and the Sheikh used to teach, I think, primarily Usul al-Tafsir and Tafsir, uh, Usul al-Fiqh, sorry, and Tafsir um, at the Islamic University of Medina, as well as teaching in the Haram, in the Masjid 
of the Prophet And the Shaykh would then remain uh, teaching there uh, more or less up until his death rahimahullah ta'ala. The Shaykh, um, one of the things that they say about him is that the Shaykh was very generous, very kind, but also very strict. So he would be strict when he came to issues of etiquettes of seeking knowledge, strict when he came to issues of, of knowledge and halal and haram and the way that people should behave and you know think, doing things that are not befitting for a Muslim and so on. He would become very strict. But he was also very generous and very kind uh, to the people around him. Would always help people that were in debt, would always help the poor and the needy, would always be very open and generous with his wealth. Rahimahullah ta'ala. And he was also someone, as we said, who was very focused when it came to his studies and his readings and so on. He was also someone and very focused, Rahimahullah ta'ala. Uh, after three or four years in, in Medina, as I said uh, before, the Islamic University was sending out delegations to different places. Um, and they wanted him to go and, and lead one of these delegations or be part of one of those delegations. And so one of the delegations was going to Africa. And because he was going to also go back to Mauritania as part of that, that long journey in Africa from the 10 odd countries they were going to visit, one of them was going to be his own. Uh, the Sheikh agreed to go back there as well and he wanted to uh, obviously go home and see his family and what have you, as well as see all of these other countries. And he actually wrote about this and it's a book that he authored called Rihla ila Afriqiya, My Journey to Africa. And that's also something which is published. Um, and then the Shaykh Ta'ala was also from when the um, Committee of, of Major Scholars of Saudi Arabia was established back in 1391 of the Hijrah, so around the early 70s. Uh, and it, the first uh, people they put on, on, on to, or that first batch of scholars that they added to that major, the Committee of Major Scholars of Saudi Arabia, 17 of them. And from those 17 was the Shaykh Rahimahullah Ta'ala bi rahmatihi wasi'ah. He would often teach in the Haram, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, in his tafsir. And if you listen, you can actually YouTube. I would, you know, I would like people before next week to YouTube. I know it's in Arabic, not because you, you're necessarily going to understand or whatever. I just want you to listen to him. I want you to, um, if you can, if you can, if you know Arabic and you can type it in because you can get like those keyboards. Um, you can Google an Arabic keyboard and you can type in his name and put it into YouTube, you may even be able to do it in English. I don't know, I've only ever done it in Arabic. But I want you to just listen to him. We have some snippets and recordings of his tafsir from the Haram. Obviously, it's only audio uh, from the Haram. And the quality is not amazing either because it's like, you know, 50, 60 odd years ago, whenever it was. Uh, but just I just want you to listen to him. He would teach from his memory. And his um, way of doing tafsir is amazing. Very nice, especially if you can listen to Arabic. It's an amazing thing to listen to. But I want you to listen to his tone or tune as well. The Shanaqit of that generation, the scholars of Mauritania, would speak in rhythm. They would speak in a tune. Uh, so it's not like when you're speaking like just normally, almost as if you're reciting Arabic poetry and they do that. They have like a nice tune, like a rhythm that you read in. This is how the scholars of Shanaqit would teach. And many, um, or not many, but some of the very early scholars when I went to Medina, uh, some of the very old scholars still used to teach like this. They read uh, or they teach, they're just speaking, it's like a class, it's like me doing, I mean it doesn't really work in English, but like me doing QP, but I'm kind of like reciting as if, almost as if it's like like Quran, like I'm reading it in a tune, in a melody. This is how they used to speak. So if you listen to him, um, it's something which you will see. And I, don't, I don't know, I'll have to ask Shaz next week, if I could play it, um, just in case some of you can't, if I can play it in the class and it picks up on the mic, just so that you can hear. It's a very nice thing to listen to. It's very nice. And 
they used to do that because they used to uh, the, the shanaqita um, you know say that if you have a melody like people are more likely to be in tune with it you know, if you listen to poetry that's got a nice tune you're more likely to listen to and pay, be attentive and so on and that's why we recite the quran obviously in a nice in a nice voice as well um, but this is something which they used to do just in their teaching like just in their everyday teaching this is how they used to speak and it's amazing like the, the major scholars of Saudi Arabia like in Medina the, 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 the university professors that were teaching at that time would come to the sheikh's class in the haram and they would sit and listen to the tafsir all from memory and he would mention a hadith and all of these different verses of the Quran that are being brought together because of, obviously as we know his specialty as we will see next week is making tafsir of the Quran with the Quran but also a hadith of the sunnah and the statements of the salaf and the companions and then poetry to back that all up and, and he would do all of this rahimahullah ta'ala bi rahmatihi wasi'a and so the Shaykh rahimahullah ta'ala he, um, he had these positions therefore in Saudi Arabia as a teacher uh, as a member of that committee of scholars and also as someone who was known for his knowledge, Rahimahullah Ta'ala Rahmati al known for his um, known for his uh, for his um, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, known for his knowledge, known for his understanding, known for his expertise in different subjects and different different things, Rahimahullah. Uh, the Shaykh also authored a number of books, um, obviously Adwa'ul Bayan, which we'll speak about next week, and as we said, he um, passed away before he could complete it, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. I think we've mentioned that before. Uh, one of the other books, though, um, that I think I have mentioned that also is, is to do with Quran and Tafsir is a book um, which, again, is, is an amazing book, um, which, alhamdulillah, I was fortunate to study with one of our teachers. Um, it's called Daf'u Yihami Al-Idtirab and Ayil Kitab. It's basically a book in which the, the author, alhamdulillah, took verses of the Quran that some people consider to be problematic or uh, there's verses that say one thing and then another thing. Like for example, Allah says in one verse that the day of judgment will be a thousand years and the other one 50,000 years. How do we reconcile between the two? What is Allah speaking to? Some verses of the Quran, Allah says that he addresses the disbelievers and other verses he says that he won't speak to them and he won't look at them. So how do we reconcile? So he went throughout the Quran looking at these verses that people may misunderstand or they may think that there's some contradiction there or they may think that, look, this doesn't like it. I don't understand what the context is. And he brought those verses and then he explained them. And he brought the positions of the early scholars and what they said, uh, you know, bringing that together. Uh, or it may be, um, you know, like from poetry and how that works. Like It's a very nice book. It's not a very long, long book. It's like a single volume. And in the old editions of Udwa'ul Bayan, this used to be at the back of the book, like at the end of the book, you'd find this book. And then what they did is they made it a book by itself. Um, it's amazing, Muhammad Ta'ala, like even when he first authored it and he sent it to a number of his contemporaries to look over, they were amazed at what he had authored. What's amazing about it though, uh, this book, is he wrote it in 15 days, like two weeks. The story goes that it was holidays at the university in Medina. They had like a two-week break and he was like uh, traveling or he was just out like, you know, in the country, like countryside, you know, in the desert in, in Saudi Arabia, just on a break. And this was something which was in his mind and he just started to write, write, write until he finished the book in two weeks. Um, and this is something which you hear about the scholars of the past, like Ibn Qayyim and these scholars, that they will often travel somewhere and they just write a book. And that's why a number of Ibn Qayyim's books, like Zadul Ma'ad and his, uh, his, his, his treatise on, on, called the Tabuki and so on, these are his journeys. Like he's going from one place to another and they're writing. And you'll see other, uh, you see stories of Ibn Taymiyyah and before him other scholars who wrote books in prison when they were in prison, often falsely or, or unjustly, 
they would write from their memory and they would write massive books. Like I'm not talking about like 20 pages or 30 pages. Like these are volumes and volumes that they would author from memory. Rahimullah ta'ala. And so the Sheikh also um, also uh, did something similar in this book of his which is called the Fuhihamil Ittirab. And I've already mentioned his books, like his, his um, you know, the Adwa'ul Bayan, the Tafsir, and as well as his, his books on Hajj, the, his journey to Hajj, his journey to Africa. And he also has uh, a hashi or like a commentary on the book in the Surah Al-Fiqh that we study, or uh, I don't know if we still study now, but it used to be the uh, the book that we used to study in the Surah Al-Fiqh at the Islamic University of Medina called Rawdatul Nadir by the famous uh, Hanbali jurist and scholar Ibn Qudama. Rahimahullah, this is his book in the Surah Al-Fiqh. And so the Sheikh has a commentary on it. Uh, it said that it's taken from his lessons that he taught, and his students like um, transcribed it, and then he uh, it was published, Rahimahullah Taala, in his name. So the Sheikh, Rahimahullah um, Taala, he spent the rest of his life, therefore, in Saudi Arabia, mainly in Medina, um, and then towards the end of his life, as he was getting older and so on, he he um, he became ill. And it said that he actually came to the UK, to London, according to um, some of what I've heard from some people, that he actually came to London for a very short period of time for treatment because he was very sick. Um, and Allah knows best, I'm not quite sure exactly what his illness was, um, but he came to London for a short while to see if he could get treatment and so on. And then he went back. And in the year 1393, so approximately like 1973, um, in the early 70s, uh, he wanted to go for Hajj. Wanted to go for Hajj, and his children and some of his students. And the Sheikh had many students. From his most famous students was Sheikh Atiyah Salim, Rahimahullah Taala, was also a professor at Islamic University of Medina, uh, also a scholar of Tafsir in his own right, a scholar in his own right, from the major students of his of, of the Sheikh. And he's the one that completed then his Tafsir al Bayan, as we will mention next week. He had a number of major students anyway. Um, when they saw his 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 state, his health, and so on, they said to him, "Look, don't you know? Don't go for Hajj. Like Hajj, obviously, even now Hajj takes it out of people. Like people come back and they're and they're mashed from Hajj. But imagine back then in the seventies with the heat and the crowds and the people and the you'd have to walk and there's not much in terms of transportation and so on back in those days, and there's not much in terms of conveniences and amenities. They said to him, "Look, your health's not very good. Don't go back." It's said that the Sheikh insisted. Said that when he came to, when he came to the UK, he didn't really enjoy the experience. You know, obviously he saw things that he, he would rather not have seen and so on because, um, you know, obviously it's not going to be the same as living in Medina. He said that he uh, one of the narrations says that he he wanted to make Hajj because he wanted to to um, to ask Allah Azza wa Jal to forgive him for the things that he'd seen and come across and so on. He just wanted because the hadith of Hajj and in terms of the way that it cleanses a person and purifies a person, they're well known uh, in the Sunnah. So he said that he wanted, he insisted on making Hajj, even though people around him were advising him not to. So he managed to make Hajj, rahimahullah he managed to complete it, rahimahullah, but then he became very ill, uh, straight immediately after Hajj, and on the 17th of the Hijjah, so imagine Hajj finishes on the 12th, 13th of the Hijjah, like four or five nights, uh, or four or five days after, he passed away, rahimahullah ta'ala, on a Thursday, which was the 17th of the Hijjah, as we said in the year 1393 of the Hijrah, in Mecca, where he was, in Mecca, he passed away in Mecca, and they prayed over him in the Haram in Mecca, and his janazah was led by Sheikh Ibn Baz, rahimahullah ta'ala, and he was buried in the city of Mecca as well, rahimahullah ta'ala, So this is like a brief biography of the Sheikh, rahimahullah ta'ala, and um, his knowledge and his position and so on, and 
there's much more um, in terms of like stories and so on, but it would become very long, and and I think there would be um, you know I think I've given you good snippets of in terms of his um, his determination, his knowledge, his focus, his and that's the kind of stuff we want to want to really concentrate on anyway, because that's kind of what what benefits us in terms of study of tafsir. Um, his methodology in tafsir inshallah and all of this inshallah next week when we go on to looking into his actual tafsir and his methodology and how he did it it's something which is amazing because uh, the tafsir of Adwal Bayan as we said is a tafsir of the Quran by the Quran primarily and by ijma' of the scholars that is the best way to make Quran there is nothing no better way to understand the Quran than by using the Quran itself verses that explain other verses obviously that doesn't mean that you don't take the sunnah and other things as well. Clearly you do, and those are very important sources. But always the Qur'an, you go back to the Qur'an first and foremost. And uh, there's not many books that have been written on this topic, to be honest. Uh, so the book of Sheikh uh, Muhammad Al-Amin was, uh, for that reason in itself, it is something which is an amazing addition to the Islamic library and an amazing addition to the books of Tafsir. Rahimahullah ta'ala birahmatihi al-wasi'ah. Uh, and so he passed away, as we said, in the year 1393. So in his like early 70s, like in his, or just about 70 years old, early 70s, he passed away, rahimahullah ta'ala. And there are many like stories you will hear. Um, as I said, it would take too long for us to, to go through uh, more depth and more detail concerning this. And it's relatively easy, like especially for those of you that speak Arabic, like you, his sons have spoken about his biography. Some of his major students have spoken about his biography. I'm pretty sure in English, like if you were to Google his name, I'm sure there's people that have like translated uh, parts of his biography, if not much, much of his biography. And so the, um, the Sheikh Rahmatullah Ta'ala, um, his, as I said, he had two, two sons that I am aware of anyway, or the two that I know of that were themselves sheikhs and teachers and so on. One of them was an expert in the Surah Al-Fiqh. He passed away a few years back, Rahmatullah Ta'ala. And the second one is still alive, he's an expert in Tafsir and he teaches in the Haram in uh, Medina and he's also come to the UK a couple of times his name is Sheikh Abdullah Ibn Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti if you google his name as well you'll see his lessons um, in the Haram in Medina he teaches Tafsir um, and he was also one of the teachers uh, that we benefited from he used to teach in the uh, in our kulia in our faculty when I was a student at Islamic University of Medina his older brother did as well um, but his older brother used to teach like uh, PhD students, I think. Um, so, inshallah, if there's any questions, we'll take some questions or about the Sheikh, or maybe next week if anyone has any questions um, and uh, something that I can that I am aware of, uh, then I can hopefully, inshallah, answer those questions for you. Um, someone's asking, do we know the name of the prince the Sheikh ran into at Hajj? Yes, his name was Khalid the Sudiri. Khalid the Sudiri. He wouldn't be very famous. You probably won't know him. Um, but that's yeah, that's who he was. Um, that's the name that's given in his biography anyway. And I don't really know much else about the prince, to be honest, other than uh, his his part in like meeting the sheikh and and uh, connecting him with certain people, and then obviously that culminates in the sheikh deciding to reside and stay in the city of Medina. Okay, so if there's no more um, questions. And I appreciate everyone's messages about, alhamdulillah, like us being able to restart QP and being back. And inshallah ta'ala, we'll have an amazing year, amazing academic year in terms of tafsir. But with that, inshallah ta'ala, we'll conclude for today. Barakallahu feekum. 
وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين والسلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته